be a church full of people who are learning together to live like Jesus, to reach our world. Doing life, doing it together, and doing it under his lordship. You've already seen a lot of heart this morning, and what a privilege to be able to learn how to do that under our God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to land primarily in two passages of scripture. I want to read from 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? You may be seated. Eight years ago, uh, almost to the day, I spent a week in the federal courthouse in downtown Portland. I'm glad to say I was a member of the jury, uh, not a defendant. Uh, but it was an interesting experience. I don't know if any of you have had an experience at uh, even a quote-unquote smaller or more local court, but definitely the bigger federal courts like the one downtown. Um, everything in the room when you get there, is designed to invoke a sense of, um, well, frankly, intimidation. <laughs> uh, you know, the room, all the wood paneling, uh, it's, it's very nicely done, but it's not just designed to look nice, it's designed to look kind of formal and almost, almost overbearing. Uh, the colors are a little darker, lots of dark wood paneling, the lighting in the room is plenty bright enough to see, but it's not overly bright. Um, there's this massive set of, of platforms up front where you've got, you know, court reporters on the left and, and, you know, and the witness stand. And then, of course, the highest above them all is the judge's seat. And you're sitting in this place, and even during the, the jury selection process before the trial had begun, uh, I remember sitting in this room and knowing exactly what was going on. It's like, all right, they've, they've deliberately designed it to make it feel this way. It's, it's just kind of the layout and the lighting and so on. And it didn't matter. It still felt like, wow. I mean, the minute you walk in that room, you sit down, you're like, just nobody talks. I mean, there's this automatic sense that this is a place of seriousness and authority, and you don't speak until spoken to. Everybody responded that way. 
I was eventually selected to be a member of the jury, and before the trial began, the courtroom was empty, and the judge, plus just a few courtroom staff people, were giving the jury our instructions. Uh, They were surprisingly brief. The judge said relatively little compared to what I thought he was going to say. He was reading from a prepared statement. Um, A much older gentleman. Physically, he was not at all uh, intimidating. He was of average height and fairly slight build, well into his 70s. Bright as a nail, sharp as a tack. But when he was in his robes, sitting high up on the rostrum, looking down upon us, and reading in his gentle but very firm voice exactly what we were supposed to know before this trial began, it was kind of a somber experience. Uh, He told us some of the things you might expect, um, told us not to talk about the case at all, even with one another while it was going on, certainly not with anybody outside, not to, you know, get on social media and post stuff, so all those kind of normal instructions. And then at one point he said the thing that probably made the biggest impression on me. I still remember verbatim his statement because it hit me like a ton of bricks. He was getting to the point where more or less he was saying, um, uh, don't go try to read the law as it pertains to this case and figure out what you think it means. Uh, it happened to be somebody who was suing uh, a local hospital under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So don't go read the ADA and figure out what it means. Uh, nor did he provide us with a copy of the law so that we would know exactly what it meant. He actually didn't want us reading it, and he didn't want us thinking about what we thought it meant. And just as I was puzzling over that, I'll never forget him looking over the rim of his glasses down at us, straight in the eyes, and saying these words. The law says what I say it says. Are there any questions? Nope. Got it. (laughs) It was seriously that, I was like, wow. And and the more I thought about it later, the more I understood what he was saying. I mean, there's a certain role in the courts and so on. That was his his job, was to understand all the case law and all that kind of stuff and to tell us what it meant. You don't want individual citizens just interpreting what they think the law means. That wasn't our role as a jury. But nonetheless, I wasn't even on trial. And I couldn't help but feel the somberness and the weight of authority in that courtroom throughout the entire process. Authority is often a heavy thing. And as modern Americans, um, not necessarily a fun thing, especially when we're not in it, (laughs) when we're under it. It can be scary. We're in a series of sermons this summer that we started last week that is designed to help us get to know God better. That's our goal this summer. Uh, As Jordan alluded to earlier, we want to be very intentional as a church this summer about connecting, connecting with one another, connecting with God's church, and connecting with God. And to not just kind of go off into our summer and and sort of get lost and then resume real life back in September. Even as we enjoy the summer in the Pacific Northwest, we want to be intentional connecting with each other and with God. This series of sermons is designed to help us do that a little bit better, to get to know God by looking at 11 of the most common names or titles used to identify God in the Bible. Uh, Each one of them says something about God and who he is and how we as people relate to him. And so what we're doing is every Sunday we're taking a different name or title of God and we're simply seeking to ask uh, or an, an answer four simple questions. First of all, what does the name mean? Uh, secondly, what does it say about God? Thirdly, what does that imply about how we relate to him? That's, that's where we get really practical. What does that mean for us? 
And then last and certainly not least, how does it point to the gospel of Jesus? That's what we're doing this summer. We begin the second uh, name of God that we're looking at this morning, the name Adonai, the name Adonai. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, it means Lord. It means Lord. Adonai is a Hebrew word. The Old Testament was written uh, in Hebrew, and so you see this title, Lord, or the Hebrew word Adonai, used over and over and over again in the Bible as a way to refer to God. Uh, He is Lord, and the word means, in Hebrew, pretty much what it means in English, Um, a a Lord, a master, uh, somebody who's in charge, someone who's in a position of authority. Uh, It's a very, very common way in the Bible to refer to God, used hundreds and hundreds of times uh, to refer to him, both Old and New Testaments, simply as Lord. Uh, The people who spend hours of their lives studying and counting these things Uh, tell us that this is the third most common way in the Bible to refer to God. The most common being his proper name. We looked at that last week, the name Yahweh. The second most common simply being the word God. Now, the Hebrew word God is how they often refer to him, of course. The third most common way is this word Lord, referring to him uh, sometimes in conjunction with his main name. You see that, for example, in Psalm uh, Psalm 8, uh, verses uh, 1 and 9, the very beginning and the end. Uh, the Psalms were, were songs, they're written in poetic style, and this worship song, this ancient Israelite worship song, begins and ends with the same phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a song of worship and praise that says, God, you're, you're Lord, you're an authority, you're master, and everyone and everywhere knows it. You're master over everyone and everything. Your name is majestic in the all the earth. And you'll notice, by the way, uh, when you're reading a, a verse like that, and it begins with the phrase, O Lord, our Lord. Uh, that's a, a formula, a combination you find many times in the Old Testament, the Lord, our Lord. Uh, you'll notice the first word, Lord, is in small caps in most of your English Bibles. Uh, we alluded to this briefly last week. When you see in the Old Testament the name, the Lord, in small capitals, that's actually the proper name of God. Yahweh. And yet, it was often paired with this word Lord. And so when it says the Lord, our Lord, in Hebrew, that's simply Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh, God's proper name, and then the title, our Lord. He's master. And the Bible refers to him this way over and over again. That's what the name means. What does it say about God? What does it say about God? Interestingly, this name of God says as much about us as it does about him, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. The name Lord certainly says something about God, and and, and pretty clearly and straightforward, it's obvious. It means he's in charge. He's a boss. Uh, He's the Lord. That means he's in a position of authority. He's the captain. He's the commander. He's the general. He's the one in charge. That's what the name says about him. He is the king of everyone and everything, and his authority extends over all. There is no example of someone or something that is not under the authority of God. That's what the Bible means. Uh, Jesus captured this beautifully. There's literally uh, hundreds of, of scripture passages we could go to to illustrate this. I'll just give us one for the sake of time. Jesus began a prayer in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, to his father. At that time, the Bible says, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and of earth. 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus refers to the Father, God the Father, as the Lord, the Master of heaven and earth. That was an ancient first century way, by the way, of saying everything. They would talk about the heavens and the earth, meaning everything. Today we might say the universe or the whole world. They would say the heavens and the earth is all the same thing. He says, you're Lord, you're master over everything. You're in charge of even who knows what. The people who are very wise and learned don't know a thing unless you deign to reveal it to them. And so he is praising God as the Lord and the master even of knowledge. Over and over again, God is depicted as one who is in charge. Now, that's what it says about God, but in charge of what becomes the question, or maybe even more precisely and provocatively, in charge of whom? And that's what the name Lord, when applied to God, actually says about us. It says that God is in charge of us. He's not just in charge in some kind of clinical, detached sense that, that, that doesn't have any bearing to me. When, when the, the Bible uses the word Lord to refer to God, it's never speaking in purely sort of detached and removed terms. Like I'm just stating something objectively true about God, but it has no bearing on me. I'm just describing something about him. No, every single time of the hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible that this title is used of God, there is a very clear and strong implication, sometimes very uh, explicitly stated, that God is the Lord of me, of us. By acknowledging that he is Lord, I'm acknowledging that I am under his authority. When it comes to authority, he's in it and I'm under it. That's what the Bible is saying. It simultaneously says something about God, but it also says something about us. It's a term of worship. It's a term of acknowledging God in his proper place. To simply say he is God is one thing. To say that God is the Lord, you see, says that we're under his authority. You see what, what we mean? Uh, it might be like, in the spirit of Father's Day, those of you fathers who are raising young children or still remember those traumatic years when you did, Right? And, and in every house, you've got certain rules about how things are going to go. Uh, often there would be rules like, okay, if, you, if the kids are going to play with toys and, and kind of mess up the play area, then when you're done, everybody has to help clean up, right? Well, you can imagine a son and a daughter uh, playing with each other, and um, for whatever reasons, um, daughter just decides, I'm not going to help you clean up. Playtime's over, have fun. She gets up, she starts to walk away. What's the little boy going to do? he's going to sputter, his eyes are going to get really big, he says, you've got to get back here and help me. You've got to clean up. And, and she may come up with whatever excuses. I mean, I realize this is all hypothetical. I know none of your children ever behave this way. Just, just for the sake of discussion, go here with me. Uh, she might come up with all kinds of really creative and to her smart-sounding excuses as to why, well, you got them out. Well, you played with them more. Well, it's your mess. I'm not going to help. You know, whatever she's going to say, she says, but at the end of the day, she gets up and she starts walking out the room. She is not going to do her part. And he's, he's getting, the, the brother's getting livid, right? He's getting more and more angry as he senses control slipping away because he knows he can't force her. And at that point, he might say something like this. You have to help clean up. Dad said. <laughs> now that just took it to a whole nother level, didn't it, Dave? I see that your kids never had those problems. Well done, well done. <laughs> 
Wait a minute, when, when, when he's saying dad said, that's not a clinical detached statement. Do you remember that time a year and a half ago when dad happened to mention this to us? That's just a point of history. Isn't that interesting? He's saying that's the rules of the house and they apply to you as well as to me. He's saying you can ignore me, but you can't ignore dad. <laughs> he's an authority and you're under it and that has implications, sister, for how you're behaving right now. You see, when you say dad said, that's not just a factual statement, it's a personal statement. It's not just about dad's authority, it's about how that impacts us. That's the way the word Lord works in the Bible. God is the Lord, meaning he's in authority and we're under it. There's a beautiful uh, living example of this in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 10. In the context of Nehemiah, what's happening here is the, the ancient Israelites had been exiled, uh, their kingdom had been smashed generations before, they've been living in foreign lands as sort of second-class citizens at best, uh, the, the, the Jewish temple is gone, all the Jewish uh, worship rites are gone, the priesthood isn't working anymore, and so consequently, God's law, the Bible, isn't really being read or taught anymore because there aren't any um, synagogues or, or, or the temple where they would uh, be doing that. And so what happened is over several generations, the Israelite people just kind of lost touch with what the Bible itself actually says. And at one point, they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the walls of the city. That's what the book of Nehemiah records. And, and they're, they're kind of getting temple worship going again. And they rediscover, they rediscover the old Bible, the record of what God commanded for his people. And they open it up and they start reading it. And they realize, oh my word, are you kidding me? <laughs> Look what's in this book. God wants us to do this, 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 and this, and we've been doing precisely none of it. Like for generations, they realize as a people, we are so far out of the will of God, we're in trouble. And so these chapters are describing this huge act of repentance. The Israelite people are repenting before God, and they're saying, oh, read us the Bible from cover to cover. We've got to figure this out, and they're being taught the Bible and in Nehemiah chapter 10, it's describing this um, sort of uh, repentance ceremony where all the people come together and they enter a new covenant with God. And here's what it says, um, verse 29 of chapter 10. Uh, the leaders had signed this actual covenant document whereby they said, we, God's people, are now going to start following God again. And then it beckons the rest of the people, not just the leaders, to join with their brothers and nobles and enter this covenant. And it says that it was uh, to walk in the law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. And there it is again, just like in Psalm 8. Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, our Lord, to follow his rules and his statutes. And they all go, yeah, we're doing that. We're going to sign on that dotted line. You see, they recognized that this wasn't just a book of history. When they found that thing, it wasn't just their heritage or, or something that was important to them culturally, although it was all of those things, but it was much more than all of that. It was something else. It was the words and the will of the Lord. He was in authority, and they had gotten out from under it. They were following their own rules. They were living like the rest of the peoples around them who didn't worship God. And when you recognize that the Lord has spoken, 
when you recognize that the Lord has spoken, there is only one sane and rational response. You straighten up and you fly right. You repent would be the biblical word. You stop living apart from the will of God and you submit yourself to the will of the Lord because he's the Lord. He's in authority. And so this whole people comes back. In other words, dad said. And all the Israelite people went, go, you're right. We got to get back under his authority. That's what it says about God. That's what it says about us. Let's start getting practical. How does that impact the way we live? What are the implications of this? Both clear and implied. At least two things. There's quite a few implications, but we don't have all day, so we're going to content ourselves with thinking about two aspects of this. There's at least two ways this impacts our lives. First of all, clearly, it means, well, God's in charge of us right now. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we like to or not, that's the truth that the Bible teaches. There's, there's never been a point in time when God has ceased being the Lord, where he has ceased being in charge. That's a pretty straightforward application. That's not hard to figure out. It's a lot harder to live, though, isn't it? It's not so much that it's confusing or difficult to understand. It's just a lot harder to actually live out. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. We know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, sure, there are many people who follow other gods and, and, and imagine and submit themselves to other authorities, including even the authority of yourself. You're your own authority. Follow your own heart. Whatever the authority may be, there are, there are many other gods and many other lords, the Bible acknowledges, that people follow in the world, but none of them are ultimately real, the Bible says. None of them are actually in charge. Verse 6, for us, this was written to a first century church. This is addressed to Christian people. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist talked about that a lot last Sunday. God's authority derives from simply who he is and the fact that he made everything. Everything is about him and everything is for him. Therefore, he is in charge, even of us. There is one God and there is one Lord. Once again, one of the hundreds of usages of this title, the master, the one in charge, and this time is applied specifically to Jesus Christ, God come to earth in human flesh through whom are all things, everything was created through Jesus Christ, and through whom we exist. We were created through Jesus Christ. So there is one God for the Christian, and there is one Lord, one master, one boss, one person who is in charge. Now this means some very specific things. First and foremost, it's what's up on the screen there. It means that there is no such thing as a Christian who has not submitted his or her life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, that's a strong statement. It's also, I believe, a biblical statement. We've just read it in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. So let's think about this for a minute. Is it possible to identify myself as a Christian and 
um, pretty much follow somebody else's authority other than the authority of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about that? What does the verse we just read say about that? For the Christian, there is only one Lord, and it's not him or herself. It's Jesus Christ. There is no Christian apart from the lordship of Jesus. This means, among many other very practical things, submitting my life to the will of God when it is clearly revealed in the pages of the Bible. All of us face a number of decisions and challenges in our lives where we've got to make a choice between two or more options, and sometimes it's not 100% clear what God wants me to do in this case. Um, If I'm offered a job, am I supposed to take that job or stay with my current one? Uh, Do I attend this college or or that college? Um, Do I, you know, uh, sell my house and move across town to buy this other house? I mean, you can't really go to a verse in the Bible that will just tell you what to do in those kinds of cases. Now, even then, the Christian seeks out wise counsel and prayer and seeks as best we can to discern the will of God and to follow it. But for a moment, let's set those those maybe, shall we call them gray areas or areas where we're not really exactly sure what God wants to do aside, and let's consider areas that are not at all gray. Areas that are black and white, where the teachings of God are so clearly revealed in the Bible, they're unmistakable. Is it possible to genuinely be a Christian, know the teachings of God, and simply ignore them and go my own way? Well, the word Christian means a Christ one, a Christian, somebody who is of Christ, someone who follows him. And that means that, that Christ is actually the one who determines what a Christian is. Right? I mean, that's just pretty straightforward common sense. Christ is the one who determines what a Christian is, not the individual Christian. It, it's not up to me to decide what a Christian is. It's up to Christ to decide what a Christian is. Now, it's up to me to decide whether I want to become one, but it's not up to me to redefine what a Christian is and then apply that label to myself and say I'm still a Christian. If I knowingly and persistently repudiate the clear teachings of the Bible and of Christ, then I am not a Christian, whatever else I am. That's the very clear teaching of the Bible. Being under God's authority means submitting to his clearly revealed will. Now, a word of balance before we kind of finish this thought. That does not mean that Christians um, always have a wonderfully easy time following God's will. It is entirely possible to actually sin, to act in, in a way that violates the will of God and still be a Christian. In fact, it happens all the time. If you don't believe me, just follow me around and watch closely enough, you'll see it happen. It, this doesn't mean that, that real Christians never sin or never violate the will of God. That's, that's not what we're saying, nor is it what the Bible is saying. By, by the grace of God, there is a lot of room for sinful Christians to continue to wrestle with their sin. And wrestling means sometimes you've got the upper hand and sometimes you don't. Genuine Christians in their relationship with God, it looks a lot like a three steps forward, two step back process. And during the two step back phase, it can be very discouraging and very messy and very frustrating. 
that in and of itself does not necessarily mean I'm not a Christian or haven't submitted my life to the lordship of Jesus. By the grace of God, he describes the battle that is in our hearts with our flesh and the spirit that he's given us to fight that battle. And we understand until we get home, it's going to be a little bit of a tug of war. It also doesn't mean that a Christian has to know everything from day one that God has said. If I'm a relatively immature Christian, if I'm still learning what's in the Bible, I'm not sure what the commands of God are, and suddenly somebody comes along and says, you know what you're saying? Did you realize it's totally contradicting the law of God here and and the word of God here? And I say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Just like the people of Nehemiah's day, uh, that doesn't mean that I wasn't a Christian. I'm still learning what what his lordship implies. And so there's plenty of room by God's grace for sinning Christians to wrestle with sin and for immature Christians to still increase in their knowledge and be Christians. And it's important to remember that. Now, having said that, it's also important not to minimize what the Bible says clearly and repeatedly over and over and over again. And that is this. I cannot be a Christian if I know the teachings of God and in my heart I've just said, not happening. No, not going there, not on that issue. I will change my view of God to fit my opinions on this issue before I will change my opinions to fit the clear teachings of God. That is not the heart of somebody who has submitted to the lordship of Jesus. It's one thing to have sin come up in my life that I wrestle with, and when it happens, I feel broken and I feel guilty because that isn't who I want to be, and God wrestles with me and helps me wrestle through that process. That is still a heart that's ultimately submitted to him even though I'm battling sin. But do you see the difference between that and somebody who says, I know what the Bible says and I just can't accept it. That's not what I believe, but I'm still a Christian. Do you see the difference between those two? I hope so because there's all the difference in the world and it is an eternally vital difference. There are many deeply entrenched beliefs in our culture today that flatly contradict the crystal clear teachings of the Bible ranging with everything from how we handle our sexuality today to how we think about the issue of identity, who am I and how do I come to feel good about who I am? Issues like how we handle marriages and divorce. There's one very different set of rules in our culture than there is for the, different, for the set of rules that's in the scripture. To how many paths I think that there are to God. Is Jesus really the only way? Or are there multiple paths to God? And we could go on and on with these lists. There are many things where the dominant thinking of our culture is very clearly in one way and the clear teachings of Scripture are very clearly another way and they're in opposition to one another. Now, a person is certainly free to choose to believe whatever they want to believe including submitting to whatever religion uh, he or she chooses, including a religion of their own making, or no religion at all. We're free to decide what we believe. But we're not free to believe whatever we want and call it Christianity. Do you see? Christianity is defined by Christ and the teachings of Christ and the worldview that comes from the teachings of Christ, and we're not free to alter that. We're free to accept it or we're free to reject it. But we're not free to change it and redefine it because Jesus is Lord, he's in charge. He gets to make the call. So there is no contradiction between the Bible's teaching that salvation is by faith alone 
on the one hand. I don't have to change myself and submit my life and clean up my life before I become saved. It's all by faith alone. And yet on the other hand, the Bible consistently teaches that if my life does not over time reflect a submission to the will of God, then I'm not a Christian. And this has created a lot of confusion and tension for a lot of years. Is it by faith alone, or do I eventually have to start behaving better to prove my Christianity? And as a result of this, there's been a lot of different understandings of how this works. And let's just say for the purposes this morning, when we look at the name of Jesus Christ as being Lord, the Bible is abundantly clear. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. An old saying, I don't even know where it originated, um, it's kind of become a little bit cliche, but it's still so good, I'm gonna use it anyway, that describes this, is simply this. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied with a lifestyle that is beginning to change because of the submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's not my behavior that gets me into heaven, it's only the grace of God and my willingness to put faith in him. But if I put faith in him, that means I have submitted to him as Lord, and eventually, if you follow me for a while, you're gonna see evidence of that somewhere. And if you continue to see evidence that I'm rejecting the lordship of God, then you're seeing evidence that I have not submitted to him as my savior. just like the people back in Nehemiah's day. What would you think if they had found the book of the law, saw how differently they were living, and they said, oh my goodness, that's terrible. We should really do something about that. And then they continued to live exactly the way they had lived before. Would you say they were taking that book seriously? Of course not. They might say, that's our book. We should really do something about that. But do you believe them? No, not if they go on and on for months and years and they never make any effort in that direction. Now, here's the thing. This, is, this first point of how this impacts us, it feels kind of heavy. It's that like, courtroom authority thing where we're like, wow, is that all? It's like negative, and we're, we're boxed in. Is that a negative thing? Here's the other way this relates to us. The Bible not only insists that Jesus is Lord, so he gets to call the shots, it over and over again repeatedly insists that that is the best news in the universe. That is the best news that you could possibly hear that God is in charge and that he is in authority. Uh, just a couple of quick examples from the Psalms. Uh, the ancient King David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Do you see how seamlessly the Bible blends the idea of God being in charge with things going well for you? You want this guy in charge. That's the message. When I'm in need, God being in charge is the best thing that could possibly happen. A very similar idea is expressed in Psalm 40, another psalm that David wrote in a time where he was in real distress. It ends with verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. In my greatest hour of need, in my most desperate hour of need, the thought that God is in charge, that's my great hope. Because God is someone I trust. God is someone I know. God is someone I love. And for God to be in charge, even more so than me, is the best thing that could possibly happen to us. 
So the Bible consistently puts forth the greatest hope and joy and consolation in difficult times in the fact that God is in charge. Let's be honest. That's not how we see it, is it? (laughs) Authority is a touchy subject. Um, Sometimes you talk about this in church. It starts to feel like that courtroom. Everybody's kind of like, wow, I don't know how I feel about this. And there's at least a couple of reasons for that. First of all, we we have a very ambivalent response to authority. It's kind of mixed feelings at best, or maybe they're all negative at worst, for at least a couple of reasons. We have a trust issue, and we have a heart issue. And I think both are legitimate issues. We all experience these. We kind of experience them, I think, in very different ways, and probably to different degrees. Some of these things may be a really big deal to you, and, and to other people it might not be a big deal, but something else is. We're all kind of individual, I think, in how we experience it, but I think it's safe to say everybody experiences a resistance to authority at one level because of a trust issue and a heart issue. By trust issue, I simply mean this. We've all had the experience of being burned by people in authority, haven't we? people who have used authority uh, badly. We've seen and experienced that many times. I think that's one of uh, perhaps several reasons that politicians get such a bad name in our culture. You just don't trust them. Why? Because we've all seen so many examples of people who got into political power, even legitimate political power, and then they misused that power for their own benefit or the benefit of friends and to the detriment of the public that they are supposed to serve. We see it over and over again to the point we're not surprised in it by it anymore. Even in recent years, our own state has seen a a massive influence peddling scandal that brought down a gubernatorial administration. And while we're, we're very dialed into that, I mean, it's all over the news for months and months and months, and people are very upset about it. I don't know anybody who is really, like, shocked or surprised. You almost come to expect these sort of things. But it's not just far-off things that happen in places like Salem and Washington, D.C., either. Who of us hasn't had, say, an employer who made a promise that they later reneged on? Or a parent or a coach or a teacher, someone who is in a position of authority who is harsh and overbearing, at least unfair, and maybe even outright abusive in how they utilized their authority, and we paid for it. Spouses that we trusted intimately only to have them turn around at some point and stab us in the back. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We've all been burned by people whom we trusted ourselves to, and it ended up biting us in the end. And when that happens, like, no wonder. Who doesn't have trust issues at that point? You'd be crazy not to. You don't have to touch a stove and burn your hand more than once to realize, I don't want to go anywhere near that thing again. You'd almost be crazy not to recoil. And so this authority thing becomes a really difficult issue. What about you? Have you trusted someone? Has someone even been coming to mind, perhaps, this morning while we're talking? Maybe a person or or an institution, you know, a government or a company or something. Only trusted them in the past only to be burned? Does that at all affect the way that you think about God? Does that sort of put a a colored lens uh, between you and God that that affects and colors the way you see God even when you're not thinking about the issue of authority? It's a good question to ask. 
Of course, you add to this the fact that modern American culture is built around the notion of maximum individual autonomy, giving the individual as much authority in his or her own experience as possible. We're taught to think from the youngest age in terms of ourselves as individuals, and, and, and we're taught to see that the most noble thing in life is the individual person steering his or her own course through existence to a destination of his or her own choosing, we see that as the most noble goal you can have in your life. Discover who you are and make your dreams a reality. You are the only authority you should really listen to. Frankly, you are the only authority you can really trust completely. And when that gets pounded into your head from the earliest ages and you see authority mishandled so often in real experience, no wonder it's a challenge for us to just get real excited about somebody else being an authority. And as if this trust issue wasn't bad enough, the Bible says you add to that the fact that there is also a heart issue. There's a heart issue. The Bible says sin has so affected the human being that our hearts, which were originally designed to be outwardly focused on the glory of God, naturally are now inwardly focused. It's the most natural thing in the world for me to think about my own good and pursue it. I don't even have to try. I don't even have to think about it. I'm pursuing my own good most of the time when I'm not even realizing it. It's just the air we breathe. Sin predisposes me to do everything I can to ensure my own good. It's, it's like when you, when you pour water into the sink, you turn on the faucet, it's just going to naturally run straight down into the drain. That's what it's going to do. If you want it to go anywhere else, you're going to have to work at it. You've got to stop the drain or you've got to put a container under it to catch the water and lift it out of the sink. Left on its own, it's just going to run down the drain. Well, the drain for my life is me and my own good. The Bible says that's the default. Everything in my life is just naturally going to go down there unless something else changes. That's who we are. And these two issues are connected, by the way. They reinforce each other. This trust issue and this heart issue. Because you see, when you get people whose hearts are naturally bent to serve themselves and put them in positions of authority, what happens? They abuse it. And when they abuse the authority, the rest of us see that and we say, see, we can't trust them. And then that just reinforces for me what I already believe about myself, which is I gotta look out for number one. And the cycle just perpetuates itself. Friends, no wonder the gospel, good news, doesn't sound like good news to people at first. Jesus shows up Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here. I'm in charge and it's great news. Everybody get on board. And people go, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, the reactions can be anywhere from kind of mixed and a little bit leery all the way to violently hostile and everything in between. And that's no surprise when you really think about it. We all understand why if we're honest. But the gospel also contains the seeds of the cure to this heart problem. And this is the, I want to turn for home here. We've seen what the name Lord means. We've seen what it says about God and us. We've, we've talked at least some about the issues involved in our relationship with him because of this and how complicated those are. But we want to end on the greatest news in the world. The gospel, the good news, actually contains the seeds of the cure to the very reaction we have to the gospel. The fact that we find Jesus' announcement that he is the king and the Lord, submit because it will be good for you, and we find that not a good thing, and the gospel itself can help us there. It contains the seeds of the cure to our trust issue and our heart issue. It contains the seeds of cure to our trust issue because the one who is in authority 
is the only person, ourselves included, the only person that you can really completely, fully trust to always have your best in mind. That's why King David could say, God, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. When you're in charge, it is a good thing because of who you are. Jesus said in John chapter 15, there is no greater love that exists than when somebody lays down his life for his friends. You can't be loved any more by a person than if they would make the ultimate sacrifice for you, they would even give up your own life. Well, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible tells us that not only did Jesus do that, he gave up his life for us voluntarily and willingly when he went to the cross, but he did it while we were still sinners in the language of the Bible. In other words, he did it before we were even following him. He did it before we ever gave him any reason to. He did it when we were total rebels against him and he still laid down his life in order to save us. That kind of love doesn't even exist in the world apart from God. That is the kind of love you can only dream about. And the Bible says it's real and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the one who announces himself as the universe's king. Yeah, you can trust this person to be an authority. Because it's not just that he would do anything for you hypothetically. It's that he's already done everything for you. What a relief to say, I don't have to make it all happen on my own. Oh, just like David, we can say, my control only extends so far, but God is in control and I know he has my good in mind because he's already died for me. The gospel transforms our trust issue, but it also transforms and fixes our heart issue. This natural inclination we have toward ourselves. In the gospel, God actually changes the fundamental nature of the human heart supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit so that we will learn to love him and his glory more than ourselves. Sometimes I like to think of the Holy Spirit as a hammer and our lives are a piece of metal he's working and that hammer is pounded out on an anvil. As the Holy Spirit does his work and he is shaping our lives, he's pounding us out on an anvil. What is the anvil of the heart that makes us love God even more than ourselves? The anvil is the beauty of the person and work of Christ himself. When we see the beauty of Christ for what it is, and the Spirit of God allows us to do that, it completely reshapes who you are. We're going to end this morning with Philippians chapter 2. So we read it at the outset of the sermon. It reflects on Jesus Christ, who though he was God himself, he came to earth. It's what theologians call the incarnation. God left the glories of heaven and took on finiteness, I'm not sure that's a word, but we're going with it. Um, and he took on limitation, and he took on pain, and he took on suffering. He took on everything that humanity means, except sin itself. He became one of us. That level of sacrifice alone is mind-blowing. It's beyond our ability to comprehend just how great a, a chasm God traversed there. But as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't enough, he not only became a human being, he didn't become a human king that says, all right, I've come so far now, you all come bow at my feet for crying out loud, how much more could I gotta do? He actually bowed at our feet. He washed his disciples' smelly feet. He became a servant, and his ultimate act of service was to go to the cross. He not only died willingly, 
but he died in the most excruciating, painful, and humiliating way a person could die in that day and age. Crucifixion on a Roman cross, hung naked, bleeding in public while you slowly suffocate to death over a period of several hours. He went through suffering that the Romans at the time considered beneath a Roman citizen. It was looked at to be the most despicable way to die. He could not have been more high and he could not have come more low. Friends, such is the love of God for you and for me. Yeah, you can trust this guy. But it doesn't end there. The passage goes on. It says, therefore, verse 9, Philippians 2, verse 9, God the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Because he did this, because he traversed this vast canyon, because of who he is and what he's done. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There could be no greater news than that ultimate authority rests with someone so powerful, so good, and so loving toward you and me. That's far better news than you're in charge of your own destiny. Good luck with that. Make the best of it you can. Jesus Christ is in charge of your destiny, and he has made the best of it that could be made. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up and I'd like to invite you as they do to just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute just to block out distractions. I'm gonna pray in just a moment. But give us just a moment to kind of reflect on the authority of God. Where in your heart right now do you find yourself resisting his authority, his announcement of lordship? Maybe today is the day that you need to for the very first time Acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, submit to me. I will make you what you were meant to be, my servant, and give you eternal life. Maybe that decision is already in your rearview mirror, but the struggle against God's authority continues for every one of us because we have sinful hearts. As we pray and then as we sing, as a congregation of people, let us invite the presence of God's Holy Spirit to pound on the nature of our hearts, to reshape us on the anvil of the beauty of Christ, to see him for who he is, and to so transform us that we would delight at the very core of our beings to shout joyfully that Jesus Christ is Lord. There could be no better news. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for the great news and the announcement of your kingship. Thank you for taking a rebellious race, a sinful human race like us who deserves no good from you and yet you have given the greatest good imaginable. It boggles the mind what you've showed us in the Bible. And I pray that the beauty of your son and who he is in coming to this earth and dying for us the way he died would make us realize that this is the king of the universe and there could be no possibly better news in the world. God, make of us a church full of people so enthralled with the glory of Christ 
that we would go out and that that would spell out into every relationship we have with people around us, that people in our community would know and see the truth and beauty of the gospel in and through us. Through us, God, would you bring more to the saving knowledge of Christ for their good and for your glory. And as a church full of people who acknowledge your name and rejoice in your authority, we say, amen.